uh, I wish that I had known about Catherine's dissertation, which I did not know. I have a feeling my whole paper might be different if I had seen that before the paper. Uh, and I also want to acknowledge that the work of, uh, of Philippe Bord and, uh, and Susan Siegfried has been important in my, in my remarks today, so I just wanted to mention that. But it's surprising on a number of counts that there are no family portraits of Louis XV and the XVI. To begin with, as Amy just mentioned, and everyone really in here knows, uh, since absolutism rested on a model of uh, patriarchal authority, there was a tradition of characterizing the king as the father of his subjects. As many historians have shown, the metaphorical assimilation of kingship and fatherhood was alive and well in the 18th century. Jeffrey Merrick has argued that an enlightened version of the king as beneficent father of his subjects is manifest in various public monuments produced during the reigns of Louis XV and Louis XVI, monuments such as Pigalle's famous sculpture of Louis XV in France. Interestingly, such representations do not translate into painted portraits of the king. The closest that we come um, is François Lemoyne's Louis XV bringing peace to Europe. Though a history painting, it is also one of a very few images to make reference to Louis XV's actual paternity. To the king's left, a figure of abundance cradles two infants, an allusion to the recent births of the first children of Louis XV and Marie Leschinska, Mesdames Elisabeth and Henriette, twin princesses who, over the next ten years, would be followed by eight more daughters um, and only two sons, only one of whom, Louis de France, would live to be, a, live to be Dauphin. With that many daughters, only one of whom was ever married off, and one surviving son, perhaps it is no surprise after all that Louis XV would have had no wish to advertise this disappointing reality in family portraits of, of the sort that were favored by the Spanish Bourbons and other European courts. Paintings such as Louis Michel's Vaglo's Philippe V and his family highlighted political alliances made through strategic marriages of numerous sons as well as daughters, and it highlighted the certainty of Bourbon succession. Portraits of other Bourbon families outside of France seem to be about the sheer fecundity of the family, and still others, such as Giuseppe Valdrighi's portrait of the family of the Duke of Parma, speak, bespeak an informal taste in aristocratic family portraits uh, that became widespread during the reign of Louis XV, but that did not extend to images of his family, at least not in France, since Baldrighi's portrait shows Louis XV's eldest daughter, Madame Elisabeth, now Duchess of Parma en famille. Well, one feature of the new images of the modern family is that they bring bourgeois, I know this is the best term, but I'm using it for shorthand here, bourgeois enlightenment values to bear on dynastic interests of the aristocracy, even as these images helped to produce and affirm those values. As most everyone here will know, in addition to the proliferation of images of happy mothers, those enlightenment values gave rise to an increasing tendency towards images of loving fathers. Aubrey's uh, fatherly love of 1775 is a good example here. Louis XVI's cousin, the Duc d'Orléans, did not hesitate to embrace this imagery and portrait genre, um, sort of portrait genre hybrid paintings like these by Le Peintre of 1776 and Le Pissier, um, the one on the right that was shown at the Salon of 1775. 
A few years before that, the Duc de la Vauguillon, the Menin of the uh, Dauphin's sons, had taken it upon himself to commission a portrait of Louis de France and his family that figured the Dauphin as a modern and enlightened father. Painted after the deaths of the Dauphin and the Dauphine, it portrayed the prince with his wife, Marie-Jacette de Saxe, and their three young sons. This private commission, given to Charles Monet, was shown at the Salon of 1771 and was thoroughly panned by critics. The picture is lost, but drawings survive, and the Salon Livre describes the royal painting parents as being occupied with the education of their sons, um, as Vauguillon de la Vauguillon and another uh, private tutor look on. Now, aside from my point that such images of the Dauphin were possible, though not warmly received, I note that Marie-Joseph's role in educating her sons is to lean in and hear the lesson herself, and that the couple's two daughters are nowhere in sight. So the question remains, why are there so few painted portraits, public or private, of the king as a family man of any kind? And there are uh, two exceptions that I'm aware of. I, uh, I thought they were going to be the centerpiece of the paper. They turned out not to be. I'm showing them. Next slide. <laughs> Both are <laughs> private images whose patronage is unclear. And I should add that because my focus is on painted portraits, I'm not discussing the many prints that show the various births of the Enfant de France, which I show you in an example here. But the absence of such portraits is particularly surprising in the case of Louis XVI. Upon his succession, it was hoped he would be a new kind of fatherly king, a kind of uh, antidote to the decidedly unfatherly Louis Le Fénéant, um, shown here in the a portrait Drouet exhibited at the Salon of 1774. The grandson, it was hoped, would be the restorer of order and morals, father to, the, to his people and protector of the poor. And in view of this, Emma Barker suggested that uh, Aubry's paternal love, exhibited at the Salon 1775, the year of Louis XVI's um, coronation, uh, his accession to the throne, could be read as an allegory of the new king's love for his subjects. But well, the ease with which Aubrey's painting lends itself to this reading seems to me to attest to a difficulty in actually representing the king, in painting at least, either as a real or metaphorical father, let alone both at once. I suggest this is because, despite the metaphor of the king as a good father, the requirements of representing absolutism, majesty, and um, paternalism were in conflict. In the same way, and for the same reason, there was also a conflict of interests and priorities in representing the king as a man. And this is a theme, I think, that has come up in a number of the, uh, of the papers today. This tension is um, also one between convention and naturalism that was mentioned by Cristina Martinez yesterday. And it comes up repeatedly in criticism of portraits of the king, where commentators repeatedly took artists to task for painting, for painting the king rather than the man. Though when he is represented as a man, they want to see him represented as a more kingly king. It was only with the end of absolutism that there was an impulse to uh, produce an official portrait of the king as the father of an actual son, never mind any of his other offspring. This was during the early phase of the revolution when a constitutional monarchy could still be dreamed of. Thus commissions were awarded to Abbé de la Biguillard and to Jacques-Louis David to portray the king presenting the constitution to the Dauphin. The portraits are never realized, but they would have been thoroughly unprecedented. 
As the revolution unfolded, the production of paintings and prints of the king and his wife and children as a modern family became a veritable industry, though I'm not sure that any of these could really be called portraits. So, there are very few portraits of the French Bourbons as a family with a pater familias, authoritarian, or beneficent. In the second part of my paper, I want to suggest that in the context of the Salon, at least, members of the royal family sometimes were nonetheless portrayed as a family. A family not only defined by lineage, dynasty, or succession, but uh, especially at the Salons of 1785 and 87, defined by affinity, shared identities, and even family feeling. Portraits of individual members of the royal family exhibited at the Salon were often commissioned from the same artist around the same time and presented um, and were presented at the same salon, in close proximity to one another. Thus grouped, they appeared as a unit that might itself be considered a form of ad hoc group portraiture. Now, it is clear that proximity and arrangement of pictures was meaningful to salon goers as a general rule, and as Isabelle Pichet has shown in her superb study of the salon, they were intended to be so by the tapissier, the person who hung all the paintings and decided where they were going to go uh, hang at the Salon. Thanks to Pietro Antonio Martini's detailed engravings of them, we know a great deal about the actual arrangement of the paintings at the Salons of uh, 1785 and 87. Thanks also to Pichet's attention to how critics responded to the juxtapositions and comparisons produced by the hang, we are in a very good position to understand some of the meanings generated by the arrangement of paintings at the Salon in general, and at least, uh, and at the Salons of, 75, of 85 and 87 in particular. And it's on royal portraits of these Salons that I want to focus for the remainder of my paper. What interests me here about both Salons is that the Queen and the King's closest adult female relatives, his aunts and his sister, were so much in evidence uh, as sitters and as patrons. The portraits of Marie Antoinette, Madame Tante, the king's aunt, and the king's sister, Madame Elisabeth, were all commissions initiated by the sitters themselves within a short few years of each other. And with their prominent presence at the salons, these royal women became visible both individually and collectively as authors of their own images in ways that they never had before. So from that perspective alone, these high-profile portraits um, these high-profile portraits that highlight royal feminine virtue, probity, duty, and loyalty to the crown challenged traditional hierarchies of gender that normally define the salon. Its participants being, uh, the participants in the salon, being overwhelmingly traditionally male artists whose paintings, typically representing male-oriented subjects, always occupy the place of honor. And this is to say nothing of how the pride of place given to these portraits of Bourbon women instead of to Bourbon princes in effect also subverted hierarchies within the royal family, and by extension, hierarchies that defined the state. Now I have a slide that will show some details in a moment, but I'm talking particularly about, um, for the Salon of 87, the portraits of Marie Antoinette, by Vigée Lebrun, of uh, Madame Elisabeth here, and then of Madame Adelaide, and then over here, a study for a portrait that's subsequently exhibited of Madame Victoire. So there's a critical mass of women kind of grouped together in what we refer to as the place of honor at the Salon, which is this particular spot on the north wall, usually reserved for, you know, the star attractions of the Salon. Um, so, a slide of the, of 87, 85, 
Oh, here's the detail I was looking for. You can get a better sense of that here. Vichy Lebrun's magisterial portrait of the Queen and her children has been written about extensively by Mary Sheriff and others. And I've discussed elsewhere La Vidiar's imposing portrait of Madame uh, Adelaide, which uh, Laura Auricchio has rightly described as asserting the princess's devotion to God, family, and nation. So I will not linger over these works here, except to emphasize how, together with La Vigiar's smaller but also quite ambitious portrait of Madame Elisabeth and her pastel study of Madame Victoire, these portraits represented an image of the Bourbon women as a family unit, if not of Bourbon uh, solidarity. In other words, here is a portrait of the family that is not about political alliances or dynastic succession, even though the Dauphin is presented in the two portraits of the queen. In both cases, he's presented as the offspring of the queen with no reference to the king. In fact, even though the status of these women is a function of their familial relation to the king, none of the paintings make reference to him. As works painted for the patronesses themselves, or in the case of the Werkmüller, as a diplomatic gift produced upon the queen's request, Louis XVI is not even the assumed viewer. Rather, these portraits construct individual identities for the sitters themselves and underscore their familiar relations, not with the king, but with each other as, as sisters, or in the queen's case, with her children. In all cases, Louis XVI is quite literally left out of the picture. Uh, I'll just mention quickly as an aside that Louis XV is actually represented in his deathbed um, on the sculptural reliefs in the portrait of Madame Adelaide, he's, he was, he's shown being attended by uh, Adelaide and, and Victoire, who heroically put themselves at risk to be by his side as he was dying of smallpox. And, uh, and Adelaide, Madame Adelaide is supposed to have declared, we are only princesses, so they could, they could afford to put themselves at risk. So in, in, in a sense, even that one reference to the, to the father is, um, much more, I think, about the daughter's loyalty to the father than it is about the father himself. But the absence of any visible patriarchal authority presiding over these images, either at the salon or within the portraits themselves, I suggest inadvertently undermined the already badly eroded prestige and authority of the king. This is perhaps especially true of Adolf Ulrich Werkmüller's 1785 portrait of the king, uh, of the queen with her two children. Entitled in the Salon Livre, The Queen, Monseigneur the Dauphin, and Madame, Daughter of the King, Walking in the English Gardens of the Petit Trianon, the portrait was given pride of place at the Salon, just below, but on the same axis as David's of the Horatii. The Werkmüller, therefore, presented a marked and unavoidable counterpoint to David's picture, whose themes of patriarchal authority, self-sacrifice, and priority of state or the family are all structured by a starkly gendered composition. The Werkmüller proposes a completely different vision of the family, one that is fatherless and centered on a mother. It also posits a very active and even autonomous role for the queen as wife and mother. In the Werkmüller, the figure of Marie Antoinette is life-sized and she's the central anchor of the composition in a large canvas that measures approximately six by eight and a half feet. She takes up the majority of the picture plane, though a significant portion of the pictorial space is given over to detailing the lush greenery of the Trianon Gardens, her private domain. The royal children flank the queen, creating a strongly pyramidal compositional form. 
and the stability of this figural arrangement is somewhat at odds with the sense of movement suggested by the poses of the figures, each of them stepping forward in unison with the right foot, the queen's heel appearing to lift off the ground slightly as she takes her next step. On her left, the four-year-old Dauphin cleaves to his mother, a little hand latches firmly onto her skirt. And Marie-Antoinette's beringed left hand rests lightly on his outstretched arm, hinting at the very real bonds of affection shared by the queen and her children. To Marie-Antoinette's right is Madame Royale, close enough for the hems of their swaying skirts to kiss. She's slightly ahead of her mother and turns her head to the left to look over at her younger brother, who returns her regard. Marie-Antoinette herself gazes out at the viewer, a faint smile playing at her lips. And uh, I'll just mention that the, that the affection between the siblings um, is, was restated, I think, in even more explicit terms by the placement of uh, Vigée Lebrun's portrait of Madame Royale and the Dauphin that was placed just below the Werkmuller. And I'm sorry, I don't have a slide of that, but many of you will be familiar with that. But it's an image of the, the two very affectionately seated next to one another. The queen extends her right hand towards Madame Royale with an open-palmed gesture that might be read as ushering her daughter along or as a didactic gesture of presentation. I want to just mention that it also appropriates the traditional signature gesture of the beneficent pater familias. A suggestive resonance, I think. So like Vigée Lebrun's portrait two years er um, earlier, the famous one of her um, wearing the, the white muslin dress that caused such a scandal, the Verbmuller frames uh, the queen in terms of Rousseau's ideal of virtuous, domesticated, and nurturing maternity. This was not an ideal associated with queens, whose primary function was not to mother, but to produce heirs. What is more, the portrait does not just show Marie Antoinette as the dutiful progenitor of a dauphin, which would have been a much more common kind of image to, to see. Rather, Verbmuller insists that she's also the mother of a little princess. The temple of, temple of love glimpsed in the background hints that these children are the product of love rather than duty. The queen's gesture towards her daughter has the effect of drawing particular attention to the girl, an extraordinary move considering that the all-important heir to the throne is also pictured here. Despite the widespread disappointment when their firstborn turned out to be merely a girl, Madame Royale's parents both delighted in her. But this was a child that Marie Antoinette claimed as her own, commenting that had Madame Royale been a son, he would have belonged particularly to the state. The Verbmuller painting makes a similar claim about the special relation between mother and daughter. The Salon Livre may have referred to Madame Royale by her formal title as Madame Daughter of the King, but in the painting that honorific is contradicted in various ways. First, by the absence of any reference to Louis XVI, only the Dauphin even bears any signs of his royal status with the ribbon and badge of the Saint-Esprit that he wears. The princess, who is dressed in a white muslin gold, muslin dress, um, chemise dress, looks like a miniature version of her mother when she was being herself, as she liked to put it, uh, at the Petit Trianon. <coughs> Presented to the viewer by her mother, dressed like her mother, and in her mother's private domain, more than anything else, Gerk Müller's painting figures Madame Royale as the daughter of Marie Antoinette. The relative informality of the Gerk Müller portrait seems to have upset the balance of public and private. Rather than a stately consort portrayed in the sumptuous raiments designed to glorify the king and the fatherland, as was the norm, Vermeule figured Marie Antoinette, who looked too much like an ordinary mère de famille. 
This was a major source of criticism about the painting, which was said, among other things, to lack majesty. Similar to the, to the tensions that circulated around the representations of Louis XVI as monarch and as a man, enlightened discourses that defined virtuous femininity in terms of bourgeois ideals of motherhood conflicted with those that defined queenship, as Mary Sherrup has discussed in her essay on the Vigil of One Portrait. Combined with its explicit references to the queen's private domain, the painting presented viewers with a powerful symbol of a queen's worrying autonomy from the king and the court. The absence of the king in a painting shown at the Salons of 1785-87 can be understood then as a sign or a confirmation of familial disorder and by extension of social and political disorder in an era of proliferating and deeply charged images of enfeebled or disappearing patriarchs more generally. The portraits of royal women at the Salons of 1785-87 then, no doubt unintentionally, called into question the power and the prestige of the monarchy, or at least the arts administrators and the tapissiers seem to have thought so, for the Salon of 1789 appears to have been uh, uh, to, appears to have attempted to offer a correction to the two previous ones. At this salon, which opened two months after the storming of the Bastille, 14 years after his coronation, Louis XVI appeared again in the salon and coronation robes, this time in a new portrait d'apparat by Calais, and this time with the ornaments on the throne uh, referring to justice and liberty with the facies and um, so forth. This is a version that was to be presented to the National Assembly. A place of honor at the Salon was restored to the king, and familial order was restored, for the queen was no longer to be seen or heard, as it were. And I just have a slide. This is actually um, of an earlier Salon, but it's uh, useful, I think, in highlighting how much the, the place of honor would have stood out with this uh, portrait of the, of the king in, in 1789. The princesses still made a showing at this salon with La Bidiar's portraits of Madame Victoire and the long dead Duchesse de Parma with her son. They were pendants to the, the portrait of Madame Adelaide. Shown dutifully flanking the Calais uh, portrait d'apparat, Madame Tante here appeared at this salon in supporting roles that linked Louis XVI to his father and grandfather rather than there being a star attraction. So it turns out they were just princesses after all. If the purpose of this last salon of the Ancien Régime was to reassert Louis' kingly authority as the father of his people, without reference to his actual children, it was, of course, a fruitless endeavor. Uh, Vestier's portrait of Latude, um, actually, you can see, uh, this is a detail that you can just see uh, the, the portrait of the king flanked by the, the portrait of uh, Mesdames in this. Uh, not actual, I think, very accurate representation of the, of the Salon of 1789 since it's for a projected, uh, for, for a, pro a proposal that had been made by um, Mayi. Um, but the, um, at the same Salon, the portrait of the king had to share wall space with this famous image of the uh, of Latude, who uh, was, had famously you know, uh, escaped from the uh, from the Bastille numerous times, so there's this very explicit reference to the events that occurred um, two months prior. Um, so I think an image that very pointedly challenged monarchical authority. And Calais' portrait also had to share space with David's Brutus. Um, a painting of one of the most notorious fathers of ancient Rome, uh, 
described as a monster whose actions could not be sufficiently condemned or praised, a painting that reasserted patriarchal authority no matter the cost, even as it intimated the death of the father and the king. Thanks. Thank mm -hmm. you.